Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dream a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the story career consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, seminars, and teleseminars. And I am very, very excited to have with me today as my guest, Dan O'Shannon of Modern Family. Very excited. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You got it. And let me tell you a little bit about Dan. Now, I'm reading Dan's Wikipedia um, intro, so I'm I'm going to go through all of it. All um, of it? So it's a little, ch- yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right. I'll go. I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll highlight certain okay. spots. How okay. about that? So Dan O'Shannon is an American writer and producer <laughs> who has worked on shows such as New Heart, Cheers, and Frasier. He is currently mm-hmm. an executive producer of the ABC show Modern Family. In addition to writing TV since 1985, Dan O'Shannon is the author of a book about comedy theory. What are you laughing at? A comprehensive guide to the comedic event published by Continuum International Publishing Group. And I love this book, so I'm very, very excited to hear about this. Um, Yes, love. Uh, The book examines what comedy is and why we respond to it in the way that we do and has been adopted by the universities across the country. Oh, I love to hear that. That's Mm. great. That's really great. Now, so we have significant awards and nominations for Dan O'Shannon, Emmy Awards, two awards for Best Comedy, Modern Family, three nominations for Best Comedy, Frasier, four nominations, one award for Best Comedy, Cheers, Writers Guild of America Awards, three awards for Modern Family, (laughs) one nomination for, all right, okay, so we'll skip through that. Dan's done very well on the award circuit. And then, um, so Dan is currently an executive producer on Modern Family. Before that, he was a co-executive producer on Better Off Ted. And before I was fired from that, that show. you were what? I was fired from that show. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Okay. I love the honesty. <laughs> and we talk about getting fired on this show. Oh, I got yeah, fired from that one. Yeah, we are sad. so open about that life experience. That's great. <laughs> um, and then back to you, co-executive producer, season one writer or co-writer of two episodes. Jericho, co-executive producer. Um, Threshold, co-executive producer. Star Trek Enterprise. You could just by... have them look me up on Wikipedia. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, we got to get to some of the other. And then Frasier, I loved, co-executive okay. producer. The King of Queens. You've been on, like, every great show. I love these oh. shows. Maggie, Suddenly Susan, The Boys, Cheers. Um, so Cheers was kind of like your biggest um, stepping stone as far as, like, you climbed the ladder at Cheers. You went from executive story editor to executive producer yeah yeah that, wow. was, that was a that was a four-year stretch and uh, wow. uh managed to move up the ladder a bit there and that was it was a great experience so tell us about all right why don't we start there i mean we have so much to cover so and much I'm so excited <laughs> but the idea of how do you go from being that level to executive producer in four years 
Um, I know people who did it in fewer years and uh, still do it in fewer years. I hate them all. I um, <laughs> I uh, I was writing at the time with a partner, Tom Anderson, and uh, we joined Cheers as executive story editors. Mm-hmm. And um, we had been on Newhart for a year before that. Right. If, uh, people listening to this ask your parents about Newhart. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and and we really just climbed up the ladder one notch at a time. Maybe I think one year we might have skipped a notch, but you would go from executive story editor back then to co-producer, which was the lowest on the producer rung, and then producer, and then supervising producer, and then co-exec producer, and then pro- executive producer. I, I think we skipped one of those somewhere. Right. But uh, um, it was really just standard that if you kept, you stayed with the show and they kept having you back as a writer, they would automatically move you up one rung of the ladder. And I think we became executive producers when we were running the show in the final season. We weren't partners anymore, but we were both on the show together. Interesting. Well, let's talk about that, too. So w- at what point did you guys separate, and how was that continuing on the same show as individual writers? Oh, well, it's interesting. If you were asking me this question back in the day when it was happening, my answer would have been very different because I, I don't think I had at all the wherewithal that I, I have now or, or any amount of the insight. Um, I, I couldn't. I don't know if I could have put my finger on it then. I, I might have thought, you know, well, I'm doing most of the work or something, which I, back then I might have thought so. And I only know in retrospect that, that what it was was I, I'd wanted to be funny since I was a little kid, and I'd wanted to be a TV writer since I knew what one was. And I wanted to do it as a way of getting people to like me because I felt just inherently unlikable. I, I, I still feel that way. Do not disagree with me. And... Um, and uh, and so I got into this to, to, to I guess, to be loved in, in some way. And my friend Tom, who I wrote with, just a naturally very funny guy. Right. And uh, whereas I wasn't born funny, I was just, I just really just, it was all just knocking my head against things, trying to figure out how to be funny, which is what resulted in the book that we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah. But, um, uh, and so Tom was just one of those affable people that was naturally funny, just gifted and charming, just full of charisma. And we were a team. And we would work on scripts, and I would worry about them and worry about them, and we would both write these things. And people just naturally gravitated toward Tom more than they did to me, I think just naturally. And I think I was extremely jealous. I think there was a part of me, and I only know this now as a, sort of a more of a grown-up where I can look back and say, you know, I, I think I was writing because I wanted to be loved, and I was jealous that people loved my partner more than me. And he didn't seem to need it as much as I did as far as the writing went. And so uh, so we broke up, and... Um, but we stayed on the same staff. We'd been on the staff of Cheers for two years by that point, and we'd both proved our, our worth in the writer's room. And so they opted to keep us both on. And so we both ran the show in the last season um, together, but not as a f- official team. And were there, like, I hear so many horror stories of teams splitting up and, like, what that first year is like because <laughs> it's like a divorce. It like, was. What I was going to say, was how terrible. was it being thrown into a situation where you were running a show together and you had the wound of when you were together and now you're not together as a team? Well, we uh, we split up, like, our second to last year. I don't think we were running the show just yet. And right. uh, it was that year that was the – it was kind of a hard right. transition. And by the yeah. time we were both running it, we were okay. And, it, you know, we both um, – you know, we had our first wives back then who were best friends, which is a big mistake. And we all had socialized together. And then Tom and his wife got divorced. And then his wife came and stayed with us. And then, and then you know, they were best friends. Of course, she's all mad at Tom. And she's saying so about Tom. She's stirring up that, you know what he really thinks of you, Dan? Now, this is all stuff people should be like, but they should be like that in their own homes. And, and right. that should not stir <laughs> things up. But it was like, you know, so I think there was a couple of years where we didn't even talk. And which was sad because we knew each other when we were kids in Ohio. Right. And, um, oh, and, interesting. Yeah. And then, we, uh, and then one day... I I don't remember which one of us just picked up the phone and called the other. And we sort of picked up where we left off. And we kind of, we both had decent careers after Cheers. And, and so we, uh, we to this day, get along.
along. He's he's thanked at the end of my book as somebody who made me laugh when I was a kid and still does now. He's a, he's a good friend. That's great. I love that story. All right, so on to the book because we're, we're very, very excited. Now, the book has only been out one week. Uh, a week Thursday, oh, so wow. uh, yeah, so not even a week. So people can get the book where? Uh, I think they can get it at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or uh I think I think there are other spots. I just don't I know, know, but it's they not. I can an... get it at Amazon.com because they, they posted it on Facebook this morning. Oh, oh, yeah. okay, lovely, yeah. yay! <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I think it's not available as an ebook in any form for another month or two, right. and then, then it will be. But uh, but for right now, it's uh, it's all orderable. What about the writers for? You know, I don't know. Interesting. I should find out. I bet it is available at the Wouldn't that be store. something to yeah. walk in a store and see it? Yeah. I'm very excited. It's yeah. my first book ever, you see. Yeah. The writer's store is, I have to tell you, like I, they sell all of my products and they are such a great group. I knew this was going to be about you. <laughs> I knew this was going to circle around to yeah. your books. You've written like 80 books. I've got one. Just give me two minutes on your show, okay? <laughs> I love you. Uh, so anyway, but what I'm saying is I want you to get to know that group because even if you do seminars or classes or whatever at the writer's store, all about telling people what your book is about, mm-hmm. they are great. Oh, great. And, and writers flock to that store. So Terrific. Yeah. So, I'll, you know, I'll have to ask. I'll ask them if you're really? there. Yeah. I'd I'll love that. Them. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, all right. So, um, so give us a sense of like what I loved about your book is is really the logic like you're a very logical driven person mixed with the idea of like like the whole structure of comedy and and the whole idea of of what goes into the antidotes that really makes them work so share with us like what inspired the concept of this book well um i think it was that uh i've always had a bit of an analytical bent and um I met some people at Cleveland State University where I uh, I occasionally will go and speak to classes. Uh, it's around where I grew up, and um, and I met some people there that were had you know shown me uh, some experiments that had been done, uh, some tests on different people's senses of humor and that sort of thing. And I I kept looking at all these tests and all this data, and I just kept thinking that it didn't quite make sense to me because it was based on sort of flawed assumptions about what comedy is. And I started looking at uh, analytical studies of comedies written by these academes, many of whom are like their majors in like archaeology or marketing or this or that. And then they take, you know, a couple of months and write a book about comedy. And um, and I, and I of course, as anyone who sort of creates it, just, you know, snubbed my nose, you know, snubbed the nose at it, you know, oh, thumbed my nose. That's what I'm looking for. And um, <laughs> I'm a writer. And, um, and uh, but then, you know, at, at some point I thought, well, you know, if I'm so smart, how would I approach it? You know, rather than just knocking everything down. And so I decided to take an afternoon and just sort of think, well, if I had to explain how comedy works or what comedy really is, well, how would I go about it? And I came up with a very sort of crude overall structure of it that, that really just became eventually the, the spine of uh, this book. And uh, it really uh, it took eight years of solid writing. Not solid writing because I was working on these shows, but whenever I could, I would be writing. And uh, there were a couple wow, of times, yeah, there were a couple great. of hiatuses where I would rent an apartment and just cover the wall with whiteboards and have diagrams all over the place. You know, I spent way too much time on comedy structure when when that's actually a much smaller part of the whole picture than than I had first thought. You know, because I went in thinking I'd be a total academe about it, and then the book is a little more hopefully approachable and a oh, little more very accessible. Approachable. Yeah. Um, but uh, so it really became the question, could I answer this? You know, could I d- 
define comedy to my own satisfaction in a way that fits in with what I've seen and been part of for 30 years now. You know, I started doing stand-up when I was 19, and then I've been doing TV for 27 years. Amazing. And so, uh, so I've, I've had, like, a lot more lab work, I think, than a lot of the academes who will say, you know, where's your college degree? And I, I don't have one. Um, well, and let's talk <laughs> about that. So you now you mentioned that briefly, and then I, I, I don't want to interrupt your flow, but so you, I love the idea that you were in college for six months and then you dropped out. Yeah, yeah. It's I dropped out or was kicked out. It really depends because I, I dropped out, and then the next day I got something in the mail saying don't come back, but that had been mailed before I dropped out. So it's really who you ask. It's it's a dead <laughs> heat. But I, I was asked to leave, and uh, I did not uh, attend a lot of classes. I hung out at the, the college newspaper offices and wrote a silly column every week, and I hung out with them, and I did not attend classes, and they got wise to me, um, and they asked me to leave. And so, uh, but then years later, when I, by the time I was running Frasier, I knew a lot of writers who on their hiatuses would go back to their alma maters and, you know, speak to communications classes, writing classes, that sort of thing. And so I got in touch with a couple of people at Cleveland State on the off chance that they'd be interested, and they have a nice communications department there, and there's Dr. Kim Neuendorf and Jack Powers and a few other people there that were interested in um, having me. So I went, and I met with them, and I talked to classes, and that that turned into kind of a regular thing, and then they were kind enough to, uh, to arrange for me to receive an honorary doctorate, and then I did the commencement speech. Oh, so, uh, I love that. Yeah, so it was, it was very nice. Uh, you know, back when I went to college, you know, I, I told the English teachers back then, remember this is 1980, in 1980 actually, so it's well before the internet, and so I, no one knew how TV worked unless right. they actually lived out here. I right. remember having a girlfriend, and I would say to her, you know, maybe I'll go out to Hollywood and write for Johnny Carson, and she said, what do you mean write for Johnny Carson? And I said, you know, like write his jokes, and she said, you mean like when he makes jokes, you'll write them down like a stenographer? You know, it's like that. And that's people what people know. thought, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know what ever happened to her. Anyway, right. <laughs> n- not much, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, uh, yeah, so I, uh, I would tell t- English teachers at Cleveland State or different colleges, whatever, back then, I would say, I want to write for TV one day. And they would all say, yeah, wouldn't that be great? And it was clear that they had no idea how to go about it because we didn't have the resources that we do now. We couldn't just email producers of TV shows or, or just, like, get all this, uh, you know, information online. So there was no way to do it but just physically learn how to do it. So I started doing stand-up, and then I hightailed it out here and eventually learned what a spec script was, which I had to type out on a manual typewriter on which the space key did not always work. And so after every every word, I had to advance the carriage one space. Wild. Um, yeah, crazy. That is wild. Yeah. How much? Do, oh, I love that. Now, so tell me about like the stand I mean, and we're going to continue on with the book, the stand up mm-hmm. comedian. I love how you talked about like why your motivation for for comedy and love and validation and all that, which I think is so great. Um with Thanks for appreciating the big hole inside of me. <laughs> but that's what makes yeah. us laugh. Oh, great. So that's good. That's good. It's, it's being, in, in, or being able to access that hole. That is your gift, Dan. Oh, you have to embrace that. Oh, embrace nice. the hole. <laughs> it hurts um, so I much. Know. <laughs> I know. Um, when you were a stand-up comedian, like how? what was your evolution in that area that that may be informed in your career, and I, I would imagine, do you cover Yeah, I, I talk, you know, I, I, the book is, um, I should be clear that the book is not specifically uh, a how-to-write comedy. It really is theory behind it. What is comedy? You know, I got tired of seeing a lot of people saying, you know, all comedy is superiority or all comedy is incongruity, and I, I looked for a bigger picture of what comedy is, and it's really about how we respond to certain information. And, um, 
And so while it's all about that, it is sort of peppered with a lot of anecdotes. And I think there are things that will, will help people who want to write it. Um, but it really is it's under the hood. It's, it's what people think and, and what happens when they encounter information they can see as comedic. Um, but anyway, to get to the stand-up thing, uh, I found that... Um, I, you know, as I told you, I was always analytical. I was actually very lucky that I was not born funny. Right. Because the people who are born funny never have to really think about it. They just instinctively, intuitively, they say those things that make people laugh, and they look at you the right way, and they have that kind of swagger, and they just do what they do. I or, think you're very funny. You do. So well, that, I, it's, yeah. it's all learned. Not underneath. <laughs> I'm terribly unfunny underneath. Um, but uh, it's all put on. But uh, at eight years old, I was at this uh, uh, thing uh, at our school, uh, an assembly. And there was some guy on stage, and he was being very funny. And I don't remember what he was doing. But I do remember this one moment. This is in the introduction where we're all laughing and laughing. And he's waiting for us to catch our breaths. And he just said out loud to nobody, he said, although in a way, I guess he said it to me. But he said, uh, there's nothing like the feeling of making people laugh. And it hit me like a lightning bolt. And I remember... It hitting me with such force that, that I looked around the room to see if other people had heard what he said. And and to me, the idea that you could decide to go up in front of people and say and do things that would make them all feel like this, would make us, make people feel like, toward me like we all felt about this guy, it was just, it, it really rattled my world. Uh, nobody else seemed to notice it, but I, I sure did. Right. Um, and so I made a conscious decision at eight, I'm going to be funny. And I had never been, it never occurred to me. And I had no idea how to go about it. Right. And I was very jealous of all the kids that were naturally funny because I right. just couldn't quite get there. I would try to imitate them. I would imitate people I'd seen in movies. I just, and it was a, it was years, my teenage years of just reading things that were funny, watching things, analyzing, try experimenting, falling down over and over, literally and figuratively. Um, anyway, uh, and throughout my entire career, I've analyzed while I've done it. I've just always been sort of watching things as I do it, even if I seem to do it instinctively. Um, and I've been very lucky to have some intuitive kind of flashes. And one of them happened when I was doing stand-up. Um, and it was uh, at a time when I first started doing it. And I had a lot of different material. I would talk about things like at the time I was in college. I would talk about going to college or my girlfriend or sex or the news, politics, whatever. And I would group them by topic and I would talk about these things. And I was very hit and miss. And some weeks I would kill and other weeks I would die. And I couldn't figure it out. And then one day, it was like this one of those lightning bolt moments. Uh -huh. I was cutting the grass in the backyard. And I, I, I remember getting the answer. And I remember standing there with the, the lawnmower vibrating in my hands as I just sort of soaked this in. The problem was that uh, at the time I was 19, but I looked like I was 12. Right. And I realized from the moment they said, ladies and gentlemen, here's Dan O'Shannon, uh, from the moment they say my name, I walk up these steps and then across the stage to a microphone. And before I open my mouth, the audience is deciding who I am. And if I start doing material that's worldly about sex or politics, I have no credibility. I'm going against the idea they want to have of me. They're giving me a benefit of the doubt before I open my mouth. They're giving me a chance to go with what they've got and build on it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I was going against it. Mm -hmm. So that week, the next week I went up on stage, I uh, jettisoned all these sort of more worldly material. I actually wore a sweater that was a couple sizes too big and accented right. the nervous kind of energy right. without being cutesy. I sort of hate that sort of thing. But, uh, but I went up and suddenly jokes that worked like, you know, a, a scale one to ten, like a six, were suddenly getting nines. And, and, and jokes that had gotten tens were getting applause. And I had... In essence, physically, my physicality, I had joined with the act, whereas before that, I had been a guy who went up and delivered comedy material as though I was just like skeet shooting. I would like toss these jokes up in the air and expect people to point at them and laugh as though it had nothing to do with me. I was just a, a, a benign delivery system. But once I adopted this character and started talking about these things that looked like I could be talking about them, each joke informed them a little more of who I was and who I was informed each joke. And the material and I started building on each other. And within a couple of weeks, I was working professionally. And then I did that for the next few years. I love that. 
you 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 describe that like so it just makes so much sense you know i i think but i think for any expert in any field like when you hear the moment where it, when you hit the moment where it clicks mm-hmm. where suddenly you understand what it takes to make it happens i mean i think that's that's a great moment and i think having a book that explains that like i love that you knew at age 8 you wanted to be funny and like your your dream like was something that evolved in and i honestly think your journey of of dying and and then hitting huge success and going back and forth before you hit the mainstream is every comics background like i i think there are very few comedians that can say they hit it every time from the beginning because right. I think it's it's the ebb and flow yeah. that honestly I think creates the the comedian that stands out because of the self deprecation and and you have to, in order to authentically pull that off you have to know what the experience is of having something not work <laughs> you know what I mean well, so I think I've it all that. fuels it I I think it fuels it so I I think that's fantastic. All right, so going into some of what what else was in the book. So you, um, so when you first pitched your idea of the book to your publisher, how what, how did you pitch it? Well, you know, I have to say I didn't pitch the book because I, um, as I say, I sort of decided to sit and figure out this riddle. And, right. And the more questions I would ask myself, the more I would sometimes be backed up against a wall, and sometimes I would think, how do I explain how something gets funnier and funnier, and then gets less funny, but then gets funnier? I mean, how do I explain comedic entropy and stuff like that? Right. Um, and I would occasionally be stumped by something to the point where it would be weeks before I could start to grapple with it and go, okay, maybe this is what happens. Um, and what I didn't want to do was to get a publisher involved in it so that someone was asking me, where is it, where is it? Because I kept thinking I would come up with stuff that I could not answer to my own satisfaction, mm-hmm. that, this, that at some point I would have to put this puzzle down. Right. And instead it grew into this sort of very cohesive model, um, I'm, I'm happy to say. But there were times when, and I imagine that people who, who theorize things for a living run into this a lot, I would come up with I would what I would consider kind of an elegant theory mm-hmm. for a certain kind of structure or why we do this or whatever. And and it would be elegant, but there would be a little part of me going, what is it, 100% right? And I'd go, it works here and here and here, but I noticed that over here it doesn't seem to work. And so I would build an elegant addendum to my elegant theory. And that explained everything until I'd see something else that didn't quite jibe. And then it's kind of like I'd add like another. And eventually, you know, I found myself trying to save the elegant theory at the expense of, ex- expense of the sloppy truth. Right. And at some point you have to throw out your theory. You have to say, you know what, this is a beautiful theory. I wish the truth were this elegant, but the truth, I have to bow to the simplicity of the truth in this case and throw it out. Uh, my friend Jack, who is a, a doctor in communications, he's just so smart. He um, he would read over manuscripts and ask me questions. And he always asked the right questions, the questions that would make me answer. And I remember one time, I thought I was really far along in the book. And he asked me a simple question, and I kind of bluffed my way through an answer. But I sort of knew I was bluffing my way through the answer. And then he kind of asked it again and sort of forced my hand. And it got me to realizing that I had to throw out like like you know, maybe about half of what I'd written thus far. I remember driving back home and just thinking, I'll never do this. I'll never figure this out. And then, you know, a couple days later going, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But I mean, it's just eight years of like this ridiculous book. So, Yeah, but I I mean, what a beautiful, I mean, to have eight years and the culmination of all the shows that you worked on during that eight years and put that into a book. I mean, what a gift for, for everyone who's going to read it. That's oh, well, amazing. thanks. Thanks. Well, I, I sort of consider it my lab work, you know. Yeah. It's like, because there are people, there are uh, academes who have kind of uh, turned up their nose uh, at, uh, at 
things that I have to say about that because I don't have degrees in, in this sort of thing. But at the same time, I look at my lab work it. and I go, well, where's your lab work, yeah. really? And it's sort of experiments that are uh, based on premises I don't really agree with or that I can kind of show you don't always work. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, the truth is, like, when you look at, I mean, like, say, street smart versus book smart, it's mm -hmm. like when you look at... You know, when people will say to me, did you ever go back and get your master's degree? I'll say my master's degree was being Aaron Spelling's assistant. That's yeah, where yeah. I got my master's degree. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I am a believer that that you learning on the job is like the greatest learning experience of all. Well, I was you very know? lucky to, to work with some amazing people for like lots of years. Just people who just maybe laugh, maybe yeah. think, yeah. you know, uh, um, it was just a gift to be able to work on so many great shows. On that note, and then we're going to jump into Modern Family because it's like okay. one of my favorite shows on TV. I like it. And then it. we're going to circle back around to the book. Okay. Um, so on that note, um, you say people like made you laugh. At what point would you say in your career did you begin to recognize your own voice coming through? Like, I think a ah. natural part of the process is mimicking other people. Right. Into, Certainly like, well, how yeah. I started, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that is definitely a first step. And it really started, you know, as a kid. It's like, how will I be funny? I will do the things I see that are funny. I will repeat jokes I've heard. I will be like the people I see on TV um, and just fall on my face again. But... Um, <laughs> But I think that, that what happened with me, I got to my into my 20s, and by the time I was on Cheers, I was, uh, I think I was a pretty funny writer, mm -hmm. and I could certainly do jokes, and I could, I could, you know, kind of hang a story together. I, I, I got better at story, and I, I still have ways to go on that, I think. But, um, but I, um, you know, I, I was, it was about being funny to me, and um, I liked writing, for example, for Cliff on Cheers, if you remember the character, and, uh, uh -huh. um, and then what happened was I, I was sort of unhappy in my personal life. Um, not that that's any better. And um, <laughs> and that's a whole different thing. But that's, a, that's just so about. sad. But anyway, yeah, exactly. But here's the thing. I, I had a choice to go to therapy. Right. And I remember thinking at that time, if I go to therapy, will the therapist just iron out the things that are quirky in me that made me funny? Right. Will the therapist cure the funny out of me? Yeah. And I really worried about that. Yeah. But then I just decided to go. Right. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned as an, an example of irony in the book, oh, I'm defining irony, that, uh, you know, I went there. They, I went to this place because, I you know, uh, where they, they had an intake session and they asked, what do you want in the therapist or whatever? And I said, do you want, they, do you want a male or female? And I said, I want a female because I talking to a male might make me feel like I'm talking to my dad. And I think I had a lot of issues then. And so they gave me a female therapist named Terry, which is my dad's name. I do um, remember that in the book. So, uh, but anyway, um, so what yeah, happened with therapy? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, what happened was therapy did not stop me from being funny, but it made me a writer because what happened was I began to understand myself more and the patterns that I was repeating and to see my own culpability in my, uh, success and lack of success personally. Um, and as I began to understand myself, I became more empathetic with other people and to understand that there was subtext everywhere. And I think around that time, I went from really loving to write for Cliff to loving to write for Frazier. Because Frazier is somebody who was such a dichotomy. He, was, he would come into the bar and he would uh, just kind of be pompous and put everyone down. But underneath, he secretly needed desperately to be accepted by these people. And the subtext was so rich 
for him. Not, not that it wasn't in the other characters. I, we, we all imbued them with a, a great deal of subtext as we were writing them. But I, I, I began to understand that the characters I, were write, I was writing weren't just there to be funny, to move around, to do the things that the scenes required of them. That, that in everything they said and did, or many things they said and did, they were telling us who they were, what their fears were, what their desires were. Uh, that, you know, everyone is constantly broadcasting who they are if you look under the surface. And so it really informed the way I write. And so I, I think if I have a voice, if I find some themes that I go back to over and over in different TV shows, it becomes very psychological. Uh, mm-hmm. um, particularly, uh, look at uh, some Frasers that I did, where Frasier actually gets some therapy in an episode, and we talk about why he became a therapist and how that paradoxically makes him farther apart from other people because he studies them as opposed to being accepted, which is what he wanted. And um, you know, oh, that's um, well, yeah. I, I really kind of wanted to peel away the layers of the characters because I found that a fascinating thing psychologically, and then a really fascinating. Thing Thing, a fascinating thing to do with the characters as I was writing them, and as you were pulling yourself apart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that I think that. See, I could tell you, you have a very like you. You have the logic. You you work both sides of your brain. Like I definitely see. <laughs> there are people I, I who def- would disagree with you. Yeah, no, no, I definitely see that. I think that's great. Um, all right, so on to Modern Family. Mm-hmm. I love the show. I love your voice on the show. I love your episodes. Um, oh. I do. I'm I'm a huge fan. So t- so tell me about what, like, were you on Modern Family from the beginning, and wh- what has the evolution of your your work on that show been? All right, I um, uh, the, it was created by these two guys, uh, Chris Lloyd and Steve Levitan, who mm-hmm. are terrific guys. They created Back to You, and and individually are responsible for a lot of the best TV that people have watched in in the last couple decades. And they created this show together. I, uh, you know, along the way, it was so funny. Along the way, they showed me like a rough draft of what they were doing. They asked my advice. And, mm-hmm. of course, I'm, I'm so wrong on the things I said. I said, well, too many characters. And you should make more of the documentarian. Who's that guy? You know, and at the time, in fairness, they did have a little bit about this. You actually learned about the guy who was holding the camera. Right. And so I wanted to see more of that because I'd seen families before. But who was this guy? Right. right. <laughs> and um, I so it. I said all the stuff that, that now you would just laugh at and go, this guy knew nothing about this show. Right. And um, But they did the pilot, and they asked me if I'd help out on the pilot, along with a, n- a number of other writers they'd worked with, but I was out of town. Mm-hmm. And then um, and I came back from being out of town, and they said, the show's been picked up. Would you like to come on board and, and work with us? And I did not hesitate, and uh, I've been there. So I've been there since essentially episode two on. And, um, you That's know, amazing. Yeah, I've been very lucky. I, and, and, I mean, I know these guys personally, and they, they yeah. seem to trust me for whatever reason. And, uh, they, uh, and they assembled a great writing staff, I think. And yeah. uh, and we're all around that co-executive producer, executive producer level because we've all run shows and done things before. And Chris and Steve were in a great position where they could hire, you know, the best writers that they could, you know, get cheaply. Which is and, why uh, the show is done as well as it has. So. Uh, I mean, it's there's so many factors. I mean, yeah. the, the writing, uh, yeah, I'll take whatever tiny share of the credit I can for that. Um, but uh, also, you know, with the amazing yeah, cast. And also, I mean, nothing exists without context. And yeah. so part of the reason I think that the show's a success mm-hmm. is the timing of it. Mm-hmm. You see, if you look at what was on TV three years ago, most of our entertainment was based on exploiting our differences with other people. You right. know, it's like you, a lot of snarky kind of that side is stupid because they believe in this political thing or that side wants to hurt us and hate us and like get us angry and like, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then it's like we were in like this kind of civil cold war. Mm-hmm. I, I still feel that way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And then we had a show that came along that that um, appealed to to our, our similarities instead of exploiting our differences. And I, I think people were thirsty for that. And it's mm-hmm. like, what is it I have in common with that person who believes 
in the different politician than I do, uh, or or you know is so mad about this over there. What is it we have in common? We go home to these crazy people who are our family. We love them and somehow survive with them. Um, and so I, I think our timing was incredible on that. I would agree. I would agree. I think I remember I was an executive at CBS Paramount the year that it came out. That was 2005 or something. Oh, uh, I think it might have been like as late as 2008, 2009, something like that. No, I think I was. I know. Oh, you know what? I think it might have been after CBS Paramount. You're right. It might, 2008. Yeah, yeah, I think it yeah. was. Or maybe something days. like that. Yeah. We've been on three full years. I don't That's know. That's right. That's right. Okay, now I do remember. I mean, I definitely. We should look up your resume. Let <laughs> me know what you did all those times. <laughs> I've done lots. Twenty years in the business, um, but I. But yeah, yeah. So, um, so it. Um, looking at like, I remember when Modern Family came out, and I remember like the big. Reveal about the fact that all oh, it was three, all one, they were yeah. all one family. Yeah, like I remember that that was such a big twist and received so well in yeah. the business. Like before, and like you always wonder. I always wonder. It's it's always psychologically fascinating to me to look at the pilots that the agents and managers all think are going to be the hits mm -hmm. versus what actually is the hit um, right. of the people. And I would say. Modern Family was definitely one of the ones that everybody nailed it from the start. Like they knew yeah. that that was going to be a success, and right. they knew the timing in the market was right. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was one of those crazy lucky things, you know. It doesn't yes. happen often, and yeah. it hasn't happened recently. But uh, yeah. but I was thrilled to be there when it happened. You yeah, know? I mean that. Like I try to think about, and and certainly you. When I look at the book, and although you had a few shows before Cheers, but when I look at Cheers and Modern Family and what an amazing thing it has to be to know comedy, and and then wait, we definitely got to get into the fact that you went from working on comedy and then you went into sci-fi drama. Where <laughs> I was like, what? I, I walked in the wrong <laughs> so, door. It's very simple. Yeah, that's right. So you were working at CBS Paramount when I was there. Oh yeah, I was doing yeah. Jericho there yeah. and then Threshold before yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I knew your name, and I don't think we ever did meet. I think Bridget Wiley covered your shows, right? Oh well, yeah, 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 yeah. Bridget, yeah, I love Bridget. Um, so, yeah, that's right. So I, I don't think we ever met there. I don't think our paths ever crossed. Um, but so what was that like? I mean, so when you um, when you went from all the comedies into the sci-fi, like I noticed you had a story by on Star Trek. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, I, I've uh, always uh, enjoyed science fiction, and I, I love a good drama. Um, and uh, I try to make it a point to meet uh, writers that I like, right. you know. And uh, uh, when I was doing Frasier, I would go home every night. And at that time, Star Trek Voyager was in syndication. It was on every night at 1130. Um, and uh, I started really getting into the show and uh, saw that a lot of really great episodes were written by this guy, Brandon Braga. So I went yeah. into work. I said, does anyone know Brandon? And they said, oh, yeah, he's an office right down the little little row here on, at the studio. So I went over and just met him, and it turned out he was moving onto the same street I was about to move on. So okay. for a few years, we just became, you know, just best friends, just just inseparable, and uh, and you know, and he got we we got along, and 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 I would like we'd talk about Star Trek things, and I would pitch things, and sometimes he'd use them on the show, and that, that sort of thing. It was kind of a kick, right. and um, then I pitched something that he turned into a story, and was nice enough to give me story by credit. Although really, what did I do? Not much. Right. Um, and then when he was uh, developing the show, the show Threshold. 
uh, we met at a, a deli, I think, and we talked about ideas. And I came up with some ideas they used in the pilot. And he said, we got to get you on the show. And it was a bit of a tough sell for the executives because they were saying, well, he can be yeah. funny. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, a lot of people at that time were making the jump from uh, mm -hmm. comedy to drama because comedy was starting to get a little bit thin. Right. And I found that the, the comedy writers who were great at jokes but weren't great at story and characters, they had no place to jump. Right. Because they did one thing, they did it well, and right. it was a necessary thing. But... You know, if you were good at story and motivation and character and that sort of thing, then you were perfect for drama. In fact, in, a, in some ways, it was actually easier because you didn't have to be funny on top of that. Right. See, the rules of drama and the rules of comedy are essentially the same. It's just with comedy, it's plus funny. Right. You know, so right. um, so it was a kind of a treat to be able to write like dark, you know, sci-fi tinged stuff. Um, when I was doing Jericho, the post-apocalyptic show, you know, right. Carol Barbie was nice enough to hire me onto that. Thank God. And um, I love Carol. She's great. You know her? Yeah. Oh, she's terrific. Yeah, Carol's great. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and she hired me onto that. And uh, um, and you know, you find that that even the darkest dramas need moments of you know levity. I mean, people are human beings, no matter what the situation are, and human beings will always be. They'll always do what they need to do to get by and to cope. And sometimes that can be kind of funny. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was. Uh, it was quite an experience, and then I found myself back in sitcoms when sitcoms came back. So that was nice of them to let me back in. No, I love I love the journey there, and I think you're right that there was a time where the comedy was really thin, and I think Modern Family is what changed all that. It so, certainly helped. You yeah. know, I look at Modern Family, and I was like, okay, that paved the way for so many comedies to come back. I wow. really think it made a massive difference in the culture because it was funny it was actually mm -hmm. funny you know and in and it is such a funny thing because the reason i tend to gravitate towards drama is because i find that the majority of sitcoms are not funny and so when i hit ones that are i get so excited you know like i love episodes you know yeah. i i love i love when the humor is is just organic and authentic and like comes up naturally versus, you know, writing around the joke and, and, yeah. and then the joke doesn't hit. And then, you know, like right. it, there, there was just such a gift in watching the episodes where I would just laugh out loud. And I just was like, Oh my God, like I love this. And this is making me realize how much I miss humor and really good humor, you know? So it, oh. yeah. Really, really terrific. All right, a few more questions on Modern Family. Then we will take our break, and then we will come back and talk about the rest of your very long resume. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so with Modern Family, what is the creative process in the writer's room? Well, I imagine it's uh, uh, very much like it is on other sitcoms, uh, certainly the single-camera ones, mm -hmm. where we don't have a run-through every day to go to. Right. Um, we Tell people the difference between the multi-camera and the single-camera so that... In case there are listeners who are not into the lingo. All right. Okay, everyone gather around. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the difference between multi-camera and single-camera shows. You see, a multi-camera show is that show that has the studio audience in it. It's, got, it's shot on a stage, and it looks like a filmed play. And you hear people laughing at it. It's really kind of a descendant of radio shows or, or stage, like Broadway. Um, the single camera, as we call it, is more like a filmed show. There is no studio audience. It's not shot in sequence. You can go exterior, interior, and it isn't jarring because it isn't that the artificial world of a play. Uh, the actors don't have to hold for audience laughter in a single camera. Uh, the writing is actually slightly different uh, in both because and, and the way it's directed because um, you can do smaller jokes in a single camera film show. Um, 
and hopefully elicit a smile or a chuckle every now and again, along with the big laughs. Whereas if you're doing a multicam and on a stage and from an audience, you have to do big jokes that get laughs. Because if you do just a small joke, they get smiles. What you see on, on, on the screen is an actor saying something funny, and then you don't hear an audience laughing. You think, well, that bombed. You know? So you have to always aim higher with the jokes on those, although we aim pretty high on Modern Family. Anyway. You do. I have no idea what we're talking about. Well, okay. uh, oh, the writing process. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Okay, anyway. So now that you know that. Um, <laughs> okay, what we do is we go in, and there are about oh, 11 or 12 of us, and we sit around a big table, and we go, okay, now what? And we rack our brains, and we sort of like take two roads uh, approaching a story. One is the kind of what if. Well, what if Phil does this, or what if Claire does that? And we start to put something together until, you know, at some point somebody will say, hey, that's a good idea, you know, when we're not saying, oh, we've done that before, we've seen it before, whatever. The other avenue that we take is uh, sharing stories of things that happened to us. Now, a lot of episodes uh, of Modern Family are based on things that happened to the, in the lives of the writers. Uh, certainly, you can tell. In, in, yeah, in, yeah. In my life, uh, my parents uh, one year uh, found a gouge in the living room wall and asked us kids, my brother and sister and myself, who did it, and none of us confessed to it. And they threatened to cancel Christmas. And we still didn't confess. It turns out none of us had done it. But they had to stick to their bluff. And they mm-hmm. took down the tree and they took down Christmas. And it was this waiting game to see if mm-hmm. we we're going to have Christmas. We eventually did. Um, so that became an episode. Right. Um, and we will tell the dumbest little stories about our families. And sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't as episodes. And um, and between these two methods, the what if and the what happened, uh, we come up with episodes and we have to uh, embellish in the what happened and uh, always sort of build it towards something meaningful without trying to do the same thing every single week. And um, we uh, work out a story in the room and we work it out in, fair, in a fair amount of detail. And then once it's worked out in a fair amount of detail, a writer or team of writers is sent off to write an outline uh, based on all the notes that we came up with in the room and all the jokes that people pitched out and that sort of thing. And the uh, team or writing team has to kind of iron all that out into a coherent story, uh, probably about you know eight pages long or so, uh, and go through every scene and talk about what the characters are doing and feeling and thinking and, and, and write some of the dialogue. And then they bring it back into the room where the rest of us uh, or the rest of them, if I'm one of the writers, uh, goes through the whole thing and we all talk about it and we say, wouldn't it be better if, or do we even need this scene? Or what if we switch the, you know, that kind of stuff. And we will go through it with a fine tooth comb. And then the writer or team of writers, and by the way, as far as how we assign which writer or team of writers, it could be as simple as, hey, you haven't written one in a while, you're going to write this one. Or it could be like, hey, this thing happened in my family, and then that person gets the episode. Okay. Or like, yeah. you know, I, I came in once and said, what if there's an episode that takes place entirely at an airport while they're waiting to go someplace, like Hawaii or whatever. And so that one became mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you walk in with it, you get a little bit of claim on it. Anyway, then uh, the writer or team goes off and writes a first draft, which they bring in, and that is the script that uh, then gets torn apart by everyone else, page by page, line by line. And every now and again, a second draft has to be written, but otherwise we just go from the first draft, and the entire room does a rewrite. We sit around from page one, we all look at it on the computer monitors in front of us, and we go uh, scene by scene, page by page, and we rewrite it where necessary. We keep the stuff we really love. Right. And then the, uh, then the script is ready to show to the cast. And the cast comes in. They sit around another big table, but a different big table. Mm-hmm. We have two big tables. <laughs> and um, they sit around, and they read the scripts out loud as though it's a radio program. 
And we sit there taking notes and stuff that we thought was going to work that bombed alarms us and stuff that we were kind of eh about works great. And the actors will surprise us with things and, and, and sometimes disappoint us. And, and I'm sure it's same with them. Sometimes we will surprise and sometimes disappoint them. <laughs> and um, then we go back with our notes and we talk about what worked and what didn't work and what we were missing when we saw it and, 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 and that sort of thing. And we will sit and we will rewrite the whole thing again. And at that point, it's ready to go in front of the cameras. And uh, even during the week when we're shooting the scenes, there will be one of the writers as well as one of the uh, showrunners on the set. And there will be some rewriting and some ad-libbing and some playing around. We will shoot every scene multiple times. And once we have it sort of the way we want it, we'll pace it up or we'll we'll, uh, get the actors to just play around with it, ad-lib, maybe surprise us. Sometimes we use things we were never expecting to use. Mm -hmm. and, And other times we just have nice things for the outtake reel. Oh, my gosh. I love that. That was so succinct. Um, so so I think it is part of the challenge, which I have to imagine part of the challenge is the fact that you have so many characters to service and a single cam is on average 22 to 28 pages. Uh, we actually average around, and, and our stories move quickly and yeah. our people move fast. And there's a lot of overlapping dialogue. Uh, not a lot, but enough. But our, our episodes probably average around 33, 34 pages. Oh, they do. Yeah, and oh, we've gone to the table, the, the table with the actors at 36 and 37 sometimes, knowing we'll have to cut stuff, but we'll, we'll understand that the process will kind of tell us what to cut. The, and that's yeah. good for people to know because I thought the pilot was like 28 pages or it something. It very well might have been, yeah. although, you know, I, I don't know. But I, see, no, but that, that's good for people to know because the produced episode, you have 33 a pages bit is more great. Leeway. If you can okay. hand it in at 33, you're golden. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Okay, I like that. Um, all right. So now, so I and I also like that the actors are a big part of it. And I noticed that you actually answered lots of my questions and what you just covered there. What are we going to um, talk about? Now? Yes, exactly. Did you imagine when you when the show started? Did you feel? Did you feel like you knew from like having been on Cheers that this was going to hit? Uh, no, and the reason is that I, I think that I've been on shows that I felt were promising or had really great things to offer that for other reasons mm-hmm. uh, just didn't click, whether they were on bad time slots or, or in bad time slots or, or the people just didn't go around to seeing them for whatever reason. There was no sampling, no uh, no time for an audience to develop, uh, whatever reason. Um, uh, I think that, that I knew that even a good show, a show as good as Modern Family, is not automatically a success. Again, right. it's that timing, what's happening in the culture. It happened to be on a network that advertised it in such a way that people did tune in, and once they tuned in, they talked about it. Right. And then other people tuned in. That that doesn't happen right. to other shows, even if those yeah. shows are very, very good. Right. And so I knew it was a good show. and But there have been other shows I knew were good. This one, I beyond wildest dreams as far as the success of it, I'm but, sure. Yeah, when you combine... A good show with a great writing staff, with a great cast, with a great network that knows how to promote the show because they know how to see the show. Yeah. And it all comes together. Right, right. Yeah. No, that is, that's great. All right. With that, we are going to take a break. This is Jen Grisanti, and I am here with Dan O'Shannon, executive producer on Modern Family. We will be right back. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. 
we are back with Dan O'Shannon. I think you've kind of answered this question already, but I, I still love the idea of hearing your take on it. Do you, you didn't consider yourself funny growing up, but right. do you consider yourself funny now? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, the the risk of that is that you know, if I ever get caught saying that, someone will challenge me, be funny, and then <laughs> then I will just like clam up and die. So, um, uh, <laughs> I think that. Uh, um, I, fortunately, I have a resume I can point to. So if someone says, are you funny, I can point to the resume and it, it does the talking, you know. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm funny, you know, when stuff I, I, I come up with is put in the mouths of very funny actors. I love it. He skated around that. I totally he did. I'm hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So let's see. Going into, so we talked about the whole sci-fi state. Now, Frazier, you touched on a little bit, but because I loved Frazier so mm-hmm. much, too what loved Frasier. So what, um, so you loved writing for Kelsey Grammer, who was a mm-hmm. phenomenal character to oh, write sure. for. What was it like working on that show? Like when you compare the experience of Modern Family to Frasier, what what are some of the parallels and some of the differences? Well, the parallels, I think, were in, in kind of trying to write a show that had some depth. I, I think that uh, uh, obviously the differences would be like it was a multi-camera show and so right. we had a studio audience. So it was really about making that studio audience laugh. Um, right. And and also feel things. And I it was a challenge when I took over Frasier. I ran it for a couple of years there. And the show had been on for a very, very long time. And it had done a lot of five characters, and that's pretty much what it had the whole run of the show. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of, like, farce episodes, a lot of, you know, this person thinks that person is gay and will follow that out. And then, you know, uh, and extremely good, funny, funny writing. And by the time I took it over, Daphne and Niles had gotten together. Mm-hmm. And, I loved that part. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. So, yeah. So, the, so when I took over, the sexual tension was gone, the romantic tension. They're together now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people were already just drooling to say that the show had jumped the shark. Right. And also the show had a certain style that it had been just hammering and hammering for many years. And, uh, and by the way, to great effect. And so I kind of had a choice when I took over. I could continue to try and write the show in my best approximation of what had come before. Um, in which case people might start to say, oh, this again. Or I could try to to add a few things uh, tonally that make the show different, be a little more filmic, play a little more with structure, that sort of thing. Uh, in which case people would say, what have you done to my show? So it was kind of like a, a little bit no win. I mean, people, I mean, it was some win. People were going to like whatever. They're going to like the old version or the, the new version. But 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 there were always going to be people to disappoint at that point. And so right. what I did was I, I chose the the more creatively interesting road for myself. <laughs> Good. Forget but you, that, America. This yeah. is about me. <laughs> and um, I, and so I started doing more filmic things. I, I did episodes that uh, took advantage of uh, current technology, which mm-hmm. like instead of everything being like a play or a farce, something that you could go and buy a ticket and watch in a theater, uh, I did things that had to be some of it made up in post. Uh, um, I did an episode where Frazier and Niles uh, talk about Niles's relationship with Daphne, and rather than doing flashbacks to early episodes with the two of them, I dug up the footage of those scenes that have been shot, sometimes as many as ten years later, and I digitally inserted Frazier and Niles present day into those scenes, so they could be in the scenes with themselves from years earlier, That's commenting on and sometimes interacting right. with stuff that they had done that had been shot years earlier. Right. And now that's not something that the people before me would have done on Frasier. And I, I think it's something that was not looked on favorably by, by people who are involved with the show, even to this day. Right. I think Frasier purists hate me. Right, um, right. And, um, 
And so I did a couple of things like that, and they were well-received. And I, I did one episode that was a little maudlin, but it took place in a hospital. And and, uh, and I kept doing – I kept flashing back and forth in time and having it all simultaneously. So you'd see people in present day walking by rooms that years earlier they'd been in for different reasons. So you'd have Frasier and Niles walk by – or Frasier walk by a room. And in that room behind him, we would see Frasier as a child being introduced to Niles as a baby and saying, I don't like him, you know. And and so we saw that, that all these memories coexist, which was kind of the – in a way sort of the theme of the thing is that nothing it, it, that it's all together it's not just like in the past like and the future lost. Yeah, a bit yeah <laughs> i guess so i guess lost. so and uh and there are Frasier people that just hate that episode. They just hate some of the stuff I did. And, and, and it's like i'm just trying to do a good show and something a little different than what we know and uh but um but you know um it was a it was a tricky thing to try and make those decisions and and run the show and still keep it you know, the way that people wanted it. In fact, in the last season, what happens is the guys who ran the show uh, before me were brought back with much fanfare. It's like, the original producers are back! As if to say, now your show is back! You can breathe easy, America! And I was pretty much shown the door. <laughs> wow! You know what? I want to talk about that because I think that's such a real part of being a working writer in television and creating longevity and having jobs end and getting fired. I think that's such a big yeah, part yeah. of the writer's life. Well, and by the way, I want to say in fairness that, that while uh, I'm very proud of a lot of the episodes I did, there, like anyone who runs a show for any decent amount of time, there are episodes during my stretch on that show that I just couldn't watch today. They're just, right. I just, mistakes, things that make me cringe. I wish I'd never done. Thank God the actors were game to do them right. and the people trusted me and we did some wonderful things, but you know, a couple of missteps along the way. But I think every showrunner can say that. I think you learn from that, though. I mean, there's no... Not me. You, I mean, it sounds like you took risks, which I applaud. Yeah, at least it did that. It definitely sounds like you took risks. Like, so you you got to the executive producer level on Cheers. Was mm-hmm. Frasier the first, like, where you were running the show after Cheers? Uh, no, I, I'd been running uh, Cheers at the end. Um, and um, then I went from that to development, created mm-hmm. a show that came and went. Uh, and, um, and I worked on some other projects. I did an animated short for mm-hmm. Disney. Great. Um, and that did real well. I've done I've done a couple animated shorts, and they've, they've done pretty well. Um, and um, and then um, you know did a, kicked around did a couple of other shows before I came to Frasier. Uh, so I didn't come to Frasier until I think season seven. Wow. So I did the last five years of Frasier. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that is, is it. Is it's, it really? It's, it's it not is that amazing. amazing, but it's stressful. <laughs> like, to I think it's got to be stressful to enter a show that already, as you say, has yeah. a huge fan base. Oh yeah, it was and very a difficult. Huge expectation of what the show is supposed to be, and or what the show has been. Well, I yeah, that's say. the thing. That's the thing is yeah. our big competition. Same with the end of Cheers. Our, right. uh, like at the end of Cheers, uh, our big competition wasn't other shows that were right. on like Murphy Brown or whatever was on right. at the time. It was the legacy of Cheers. Yes. When I was doing. Frasier, by the time I came along, what I was competing with was the legacy of Frasier, which yes. had gotten quite huge. Yeah. And uh, so you had to compete with that. And and you also, uh, one of the things that was working a little bit against me, and, and the guys when they came back to run the show in the final season, was a little bit of evolution that had happened with the characters. Mm-hmm. By the time, uh, you know, toward the end of the series, you know, you know, Niles' wife Maris was really no longer a threat, so she was gone. Niles had less reason to be nervous and jittery. He got the woman of his dreams. Things were going well for him. Frasier and Niles, it was wasn't as easy to get them to fight and bicker over things anymore the way they had in the early seasons, mm-hmm. like about opera tickets or this or that. Right. Because they had had so many episodes where tragedy or just whatever circumstances had brought them close together as brothers, they'd really evolved that relationship right. to the point where it felt false yeah. toward the end to just create shows where they just start bickering. Right. And so at one point, we even created an upstairs character named Cam Winston, I think, right. uh, who... Um, 
who was Frazier's equal and and very uh, snooty and that sort of thing. And we did a couple episodes with him where where because you could get him and Frazier to argue about the things that Frazier and Niles had argued about before. Right. Uh, but it, it really was not the same, and it wasn't a conscious replacement of it. I think we were just missing that voice a little bit. Right. Um, but you know, you stick with it, and we found new things for all of them. But it was a little difficult to 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 do a show on a long term. I don't know that shows are, are built to to sail smoothly through 11, 12, yeah. whatever years. You look at MASH, you look at a lot of shows that go on for a long time, and all the shows, the characters start with a certain amount of edge to them. Right. And they, you know, they sometimes evolve away. The characters evolve away from the things that made them funny. Yeah. And as they become more fully realized, they become less caricatures, and it gets harder to find the stuff that makes them funny in a way without just repeating things you've seen before. Yeah. I think that's got to be natural, though. Like anything, I mean, I worked on um, 90210, and, you know, being on an issue-oriented show that went 10 years oh my God. where you're not stepping on yourself as far as redoing yeah. an issue that's already been covered, you know, was was challenging. I mean, as a current executive, it was like, you know, really, really, um, I mean, as an executive producer like John Eisendrath, who ran the show at that time, it had to have been enormously stressful to be able to keep it fresh. Yeah. So I agree with the challenge of having to... Um, keep it fresh in the end has right. got to be particularly difficult. So I, yeah. I applaud you. And I think, you know, I mean, it's how did, how did you handle stress? Like in knowing that you were stepping into a show that already had seven years, like how was that stressful for you? Uh, yeah, it was very much stressful. I mean, it was a, it was essentially a hallowed show because it was always held up as this kind of like, this is a Tiffany kind of TV show. Right. And also I was working, uh, some of the people alongside of whom I was working were people who had been there since the early years. And yeah. so um, I, I wanted to be respectful of what they had done and still add whatever I could add to it. And, um, you know, and then uh, it was um, it was stressful. And at the time I was going through some tough personal stuff. I was going through a divorce and, uh, and oh, uh, I was going through some child custody stuff. So every Thursday afternoon I had to leave early and sometimes I was in and out of, I'd run to court and deal with some craziness and then come back and deal with the episode that was on. And and as a showrunner, uh, certainly, I, I don't know if everyone else is like this, but I would carry all the information in my head 24 hours a day. So you could wake me up at 2 in the morning and say, what's the status of the show? And I would say, well, this episode needs to rewrite on this part of it, and we have an episode in editing that's too long, and we're work, we're trying to cast this part, but it looks like we're going to have to change the part to get this accurate. You know? And I would be able to just rattle everything off. I'd never let it go. So you probably weren't so, sleeping well during that No, time. not at all. Um, but once uh, in the final season when uh, uh, Chris Lloyd and Joe Keenan came back and took over the reins and they brought they brought it home to a delightful finish the the series did a oh, beautiful job of doing that mm-hmm. and the first night that I was at work and then walked to my car and it was no longer my problem it was like mm-hmm. the greatest day of my life mm-hmm. you know it's like I worked during the day I thought about the show and as soon as I walked out the door it was gone and yeah. I think since then I have not run another show right. and the, I think there are some people who go from show running they don't really like to go to being in that number two position you right. know they just get used to doing things their way and they have to do it their way. I, I sort of welcome the uh, opportunity to contribute what I can and then forget about it and then pursue the things that interest me on my own yeah. in my free time, I, like, like a book. Yeah. I mean, and even looking at the book, so probably being n- numbered, I mean, not being number one allowed you to finish the book. So yes, absolutely it did. Yeah. That is a huge thing. How have your colleagues embraced the book? Um, they've been very nice about it. And it's a tricky thing. I'm in a bit of a pickle here because uh, there has always been a bit of a wall between the creative community and the community that analyzes the creative community. Right. Each uh, thinks the other is a pack of idiots, I think. And um, 
and now I've gone from being... You know I've been on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, then right. you know. I do know. <laughs> um, then, uh, uh, so now I've done this thing that, uh, you know, people are really nice and they're very supportive. I don't talk a lot about the book at work because we're there to create the show and goof off and that sort of thing. And I, I, I'm a, I have to admit I'm a little embarrassed by it because I identify as one of the creative types. And so to just sort of come up with this analytical thing, I feel as though I'm betraying uh, my family by doing this a little bit, but everyone has been just terrific about it. Um, so I don't really talk about it at work. Uh, some people there have been very nice and tweeted some nice things about it and that sort of thing. And my friend Danny Zucker, who's one of the writers on the show, right. uh, really just brilliantly funny. And he um, has a huge Twitter following. He tweeted something about the book. And that day it went from like number a zillion to number a million on the Amazon. I love um, it. Uh, charts, I love whatever it. they call those. I'll so, tweet about it. Yeah. Well, I yeah. love it. All right. Great. That's thanks. Great. So, uh, um, so they've been great and supportive, but I mean, I, I don't, I don't force copies on everyone yes. at work. So, I'm, so I think a couple of people have even asked me and I hesitate to give them copies because I feel like I'm showing off and it's hard for me to do that. Well, here's my feeling. My feeling is we are, we are put on the earth for a reason and that is to experience life, gain value and then pass value forward. And so I think when you look at other people, I think there are so many people that wish that they could write a book that never do. And so it's really the recognition of encouraging other people. You know what? It, if people have value to pass forward, they should. Like, I, I think the biggest thing about the book process is, I mean, you're definitely, I would say, because you took eight years to do it, which, in my opinion, adds to the value of the book even more. Um, um, but I think that I don't think it's anything to be embarrassed about. Well, you know, it's. I think that's you know. a. This is a whole different conversation about yeah. a writer's psyche, I suppose. Yeah. But you know, you, I think you grew up in a small town in Ohio yeah. or, or any place where there's a little bit of uh, this feeling of, uh, oh, you think you have so much to say. You know, right. I, I would say, you know, one day I want to go to Hollywood and write TV, and they would think I was crazy back home, and I even got a little bit yelled at sometimes about it. You think right. you're going to go? You think you've got so much to say? You're so funny. You're so clever. And there is this little feeling of uh, you're going to leave town and, and go to the big city and do this. I, it sounds crazy to say that because I didn't grow up in the 1930s or anything. But it was a, um, there was this attitude of like, oh, now you're going to go there and you're going to be all Hollywood and have mm -hmm. an agent and you're going to, you know. Um, and so there's, I think, always this voice in my head saying that, that, you know, am I saying something because I think it's important to share or I think it's good to say or am I saying something because I'm showing off, you know? And so, you know, you spend eight years on a book, but is it eight years just writing something to show off? Hey, look what I know now. You know, it's like to, to appear smart because I feel less smart than other people, you know? So, I, you know, that's probably some of the that's stuff honest. that drives me, you know? No, but, I love that. Um, that's honest. You know, it's true. It's like, you know, it's like when writers go and talk to college students. I mean, I always start by, right. by saying to the, to the young writers, I say, okay, why am I here? Because you've been told by whoever introduced me that it's very nice of me to be here. I've graciously consented to talk to the class. Why am I really here? Why am I in a town in Ohio talking to a college class? Is it because I get to go to a place where I felt like nothing and I get to be a big fish now in a little pond? Is it because I get to, to use you as surrogate parents and high school friends that I can say, look at me now? Is it because I have this hole in me that, that no matter how much you try, you will never fill? Um, you know, let's look at all the dark stuff because that is writing. And if you know that your characters have these things going on, if you know there's subtext, you'll write scenes that are richer for it. Yeah. And so don't just take it at face value. This guy's here because he's a nice guy. This guy's here because he has needs. And yes, I'm a nice guy on top of that. It's hopefully true. Right. But there's some ugly stuff underneath. But it doesn't make me an ugly person. Yeah. It makes me a, a person that's got some embarrassing <laughs> stuff in his psyche. Yeah. But hopefully all your characters do. And yeah. whether or not they show it, and maybe some of them don't, but, but I think that's writing, isn't it? But that evens the playing. 
playing field. I mean, when you think about it, you, like when people will say to me, and by the way, when you talk about the hole that you have that will never be filled, I've, <laughs> I've been reading about um, wabi-sabi love, and it talks about I don't the know whole, what that is. It, it's all about the theory that the beauty is in the crack that we have in all of us, and mm -hmm. that light can't get in oh, unless yes. there's a crack. Oh, isn't that and so it's really the recognition that no one is perfect and, and, and accepting our own imperfections as well as loving the imperfections in another and finding them perfect. Well, and, I, I've certainly know. exploited my imperfections yeah. and built a career on them. So I, I should at least be like grateful to them, <laughs> right. which I think is the closest I can come right. to See? actually loving myself as yes, always being, exactly. well, you know, okay, some bad stuff happened. But, you know, maybe that's ultimately not a terrible thing. Yeah. Maybe I will connect with people who have the same kind of cracks and jarring edges to them and that sort of thing. Well, and I think like I think what you do well uh, from a public speaking standpoint, which I think is what story is all about, is when you create when you're real and you create empathy for the simple fact that where humor came from, the desire to be loved and to mm -hmm. be validated and to feel as good as, you know, and 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 definitely being open with the fact that has all the success really done that or or is the work still going on inside that it like i i think that's all honest and that makes people empathize with the journey and say like if you're saying hi my name is dan o'shannon and i worked on cheers and i worked on this show and i worked on fraser and i worked on modern family are people going to connect with that no but when you're saying i was the eight-year-old boy who never thought he was going to be good enough Mm -hmm. because he wasn't funny and I had to learn humor because I knew that was the destiny that I wanted, people connect. It's weird. I just realized it's as though people are listening to a therapy session. Because you know, <laughs> <People laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here nodding and I'm going, people. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm getting a little touched and kind of like, yeah. <laughs> and then, I, oh, oh, this is a podcast. This first, isn't a therapy. It's not the okay. first time I've heard that. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yes, there has. I think if I were doing another job, that would be it. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be the, the other fascination in life, definitely, without a doubt. <laughs> um, well, I, on that note, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Is there anything else that I you want to I can't think add? of a thing. <laughs> All right. Let's actually give a few words of advice. Um, okay. So, okay. So let's say looking at what comedy was then, meaning on Cheers, versus what comedy is now on Modern Family. As a working writer in the genre, what is some of the personal work that you have to do to keep up with the changes in, in comedy? Well, I think uh, one of the sort of tricks behind it, and I can't say this is true for everyone, but it, it certainly has worked for me to some extent, is that I, I never allow myself to feel like I've solved it. You know, for a guy who's wrote a book and said, this is comedy, I, <laughs> um, but maybe I haven't. <laughs> um, but as far as the craft of it goes, as far as creating it, I think that, that the thing that kills people's careers as much as anything else is when they decide, I've I've cracked this. This is what I do, and this I know how this works. Because they will stay at the same level while the the entire industry evolves past them. Right. And then they won't be wanted anymore. So I, I hope that I don't write the same as I did in the 1980s. Right. You know, um, certainly storytelling is different in that um, – you know, uh, stories are more quickly paced. We're popping around from scene to scene to scene. Scenes are shorter. Uh, it, it can engage people more. It's a little bit, you know, less relaxed than, let's say, an episode of Cheers. Um, 
but uh, uh, no, I think to to you, you have to stay on top of it. Really, you have to be really open and flexible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that's that's kind of what it comes down to for me, anyway. Yeah, and and now what? It's going to be interesting to see how you answer this. I'm so scared. what? What do you feel is your strength as a writer? <laughs> um, <laughs> my strength as a writer. Um, I think I was lucky that I joined Cheers seven years in. I think I was lucky that I joined Frasier seven years in. The reason being those shows had been set in stone and patterns had been created. And so I was forced to find nuances in the patterns and find cracks in the patterns and find ways to exploit the patterns or, or light them in a way that they hadn't been shown before. By the time I took over Cheers, um, there had been 250 episodes made uh, many of them had A and B stories, most of which took place in the bar. 500 stories essentially had been told on Cheers when I took over. Wow. Do you know how many dozens of times Norm walked in and everyone yelled Norm and they did a joke about drinking beer or how many times Carla had taken a shot at Cliff? So when right. I take over, right. how am I going to keep these things the same but make them different? What's the millionth Norm joke? Yeah. Uh, what is the millionth way I can have Frazier and Niles have a misunderstanding that leads to some big funny scene? Right. You know, um, and it really taught me you know, first of all, not to just be comfortable with a pattern, but to just keep holding it up to different lights and turning it from this angle and turning it from that angle. And I think that I try to resist things that I've seen too many times before. If I've seen it before, you know, if I write something, I think it's good. And somebody says, I think I saw this on an episode of whatever, I will immediately jump off it. Right. At least I try to. I try to stay honest uh, right. with, with with that. And, and other writers, we all call each other on it. If we say, oh, I think I've heard this joke before, boom, it's gone. Um but I think, if anything, that's it. Just the, the, the kind of need to not repeat. Yeah. Um, but I think that's good because I know, like, when I've gone to, like, the comedy store, the Laugh Factory, there are so many jokes that I hear over and over and over again. And I think if I'm a comedian, like, I don't want to be in the mainstream of the jokes that everybody else is telling. Yeah. I don't know? know how someone starts out. Now, it feels like stand-up needs someone to break through yeah. and, and, and kind of – do something slightly off or different, something. It feels like it's just sort of percolating there, waiting for something to happen to just kind of shake it up again because it's starting to feel, and I haven't been in a while, so I really can't speak to that. It's just what I've seen on TV. It just feels a little bit the same, you know? Yeah, I know. I I totally agree with you. Now, all right, so, and then we'll jump into your last gold nuggets of advice for um, writers (laughs) wanting to pursue a career in this business. Um, So who have your, who have your mentors been and what have you learned from them? Uh, Oh, well, you know what? Um, Certainly when I, when I was growing up, it was uh, everyone I liked on TV. Uh, Those were in a way mentors. And I'm talking as far back as, you know, I would watch old black and white movies. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Laurel and Hardy or the Marx Brothers or whatever. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were big when I was a kid uh, as far as rerun movies. Uh, When I got older and I got to see silent movies, I loved those. People who wrote about it were my heroes. Leonard Maltin, I read all his books when I was a teenager. Uh, Right. Because I lived on this farm in, in yeah. Painesville, Ohio, so uh, uh, you know there weren't a lot of people interested in the same things as me. So when I would find a book about the things that interested me, old cartoons or whatever, or, or anyone that was interested in watching old cartoons and kind of like going, how they do this or how does this joke feel like that, but it's different. you know. Cause I, again, I was just crazy about that stuff. Uh, the people who did that stuff were, in a way, my mentors. Uh, I read a book by Steve Allen when I was in the ninth grade that sort of really kind of shook everything up. It was, it was the first analytical thing I'd read about comedy. Mm-hmm. And years and years later, I met him when I was working on Cheers, and that was oh, a big great. thrill. It was a big thrill. Um, but uh, so then, and then when I started working, uh, 
the, the writers I worked with. I mean, like, uh, I, you know, I got to work with Bob Newhart, who was amazing, and, uh, and, and he was a performer. But then when I went over to Cheers, I, I, you know, these writers that I worked with that, you know, Sherry Eichen, Sherry Steinkeller now, uh, she went by Sherry Eichen, even though she was Sherry Steinkeller. Cut this part out. <laughs> um, but Bill, Bill Steinkeller, Sherry Steinkeller, Fief Sutton, the guys that hired me and Tom over at Cheers were amazing. And I would just watch them work. David Lloyd was one of the writers there. He'd worked yeah. on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And uh, I would just watch these people work. And I would start to, once I got over my initial fear of them, I'd almost try to kind of quietly compete. Could I think that quickly? Could I surprise them? Could I go over here before they go over there? You know, um, And uh, so people like that, you know, uh, uh, really became my mentors in a way. Uh, You know, Bob Ellison, uh, Ken Levine, David Isaacs, all these people that had written on great shows, MASH and then Cheers and then Frasier. I I got to work with many of them. But, um, you know, just just so many of them taught me so many things along the way. That's that's great. That's what about you? How is like have you mentored others? Do you, what is badly? The, what? <laughs> I think I think I have. You know, I've had a couple of people say, you know, we're doing this program. Could you be my mentor? And that means like basically have coffee with me, you know, every now and again. And I do. And I will talk about scripts that people have written. But I, I don't I, I always feel like I'm not quite doing enough there. But at the same time, I don't know what else I can do. It's, it's tricky. You know, because, you know, and I, you know, the amount of scripts that land on a writer's desk from people who want to get started, you know, every single person who is very nice to me, I, I, I go to a Starbucks near where I live now all the time. And so far I've had coffee separately with two people that work there who want to start. And I, because I, they're nice to me every day and they write my name on the cup. I mean, so, so it's like, Argh. okay, right. so yes, I'll have co- and I'll meet with you. And I, I don't know if I can really be helpful because I'll say the same things I've said a thousand times before. You'll learn everything I have to say and more if you read Ken Levine's blog by Ken Levine. Right. Um, but, uh, but each one of these people individually is not a big problem for me, and I, I want to help them. I want to be nice to them, and they're nice to me. They've done me no harm. But when you start to multiply that one person by 10 people, and then you go speak at this college, and five of the students have something they want you to read, and two of the teachers, and then you've got, you know, it starts to pile up. Like my hiatus was just full of coffees and lunches and dinners with people who just want the, like I hold a magic key to the industry, which I don't. Right. And, and it overwhelms me personally yeah. to the point where I have to start saying no to people more. But then I feel horrible. I feel like that kid from Painesville who's like gotten too big to help other people, you know, so I have to deal with that in my own head. But you have to say no to someone, and then sometimes they'll get mad and say, well, I'm just asking you for one thing. Yes, but you're the one millionth person to ask me for the yeah. one thing, and I have to breathe, you know. But, that, so but I think I'm knowing how it. to take care of yourself and draw your boundaries is a huge part of doing what you do. I, I, yeah, I'm, st- I'm starting to learn that finally, but, you know. but I mean, fortunately, and now you have a book. Yeah, I've got a book. Here, read the book. You, read the book. book. Ken Levine's blog. You don't yes. need me at exactly. all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the beauty of a book. Here it is. Have at it. Um, okay. No, and I, I like the honesty with that because I think that so many people in this business. You become overwhelmed because you feel so fortunate to be where you yeah, are. Yeah, survivor guilt in exactly, a way. Exactly, which causes you not to say no, but then you're giving so much of yourself up to so many right. that you're not putting energy back in. Right. And that's so important. My mom has always taught me, just say no. <laughs> <laughs> just say no. No, Jen, you've got too much going on. And, and it, I have to admit, like in... In building a business and growing a business and then writing books, it has, I've had to say no to a lot, but it, you have to, you know what I mean? Like you have to creatively, because if you're going to have something to give the page, you have to have energy. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, Okay. So last for our very last question, and you have been an amazing guest. Oh, stop. 
absolutely fantastic. I'm so excited for people to hear what you have to say. Um, what would you say are Pearl's wisdom that you could pass on to not only new writers, because I have writers of every level that listen to mm -hmm. this podcast. Like, I want to understand the idea of how do you, what advice do you have on creating longevity as a comedy writer? Well, I think that um, I think that sometimes people get the idea that you know, if if I can write, I can have a career as a writer. And here's something I tell students, and I, I think maybe it's valuable for people of a couple ages. Anyway, um, is that you know, people used to come to me, students, and they would want to give me a script and say, "Tell me if I can be a writer." And I could, I would say, now I realize I can only tell you if it's a good script. I also don't know if it took you five minutes to write or two years or if you had 20 people weigh in on it, but that's all I can tell you. Because being a writer, that's really, there, there are, I think, four qualities you need to have a successful career as a writer. And only one of them is the uh, ability slash talent to do it, to, to actually do the craft, to come up with something interesting and original and to, and to stay flexible with it and to grow as a, as a writer. That, that's one-fourth of it. Another fourth would be ambition or drive. You need to be the person that says yes to yourself when a thousand people have said no, the person who takes three jobs and types a script at night or does whatever he has to do. Um, you need that in your personality. That has to be a part of you. Um, the third is a certain amount of political savvy. You have to play well with others. You have to know when to not fight for your jokes. You have to know, uh, you have to know that part of your job when you're starting out, your, your job is not to make the best TV you can. It's to make your executive producer happy. If you're lucky, both of those goals coincide. But if not, always make your executive producer happy. That's part of understanding, uh, making your career work. You have to know, again, when to fight, when to not. When you have meetings with people, if you're networking, which is always a good thing, learn about the person you're going to network with so you don't look like an idiot. And so it's so a political savvy, very, very important. It is a social medium. Um, and fourth is luck. You need a certain degree of luck, and that's kind of the wild card. Now, you don't need all of these in exactly 25% increments. I mean, some people have a ton of one and almost nothing of the others, and they'll have perfectly fine careers. But for real career longevity, you have to think in terms of not only what can I do, but who am I? You know, am I ambitious? Am I someone that people get along with? What can I do to be more of that person? I've seen very good writers bomb out at shows because they held on to their pitches way too long. You know, what about this? What about we said no? Well, what about I really think it could work? And it's like, you know, you're gone. You know, you learn not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the ambition, the drive. I, I, I know so many older people who, who say to me, you know, I, I could have been a writer yeah, because I'm talented and I know I'm talented and I've written some fun stuff that my friends and family read. And I just kick myself because I know I could have made it as a writer. And I want to say, let yourself off the hook. You couldn't have been a writer. Because right. if you could have been, you would have been one. You would have had that thing in your personality that would have driven you there. You would have run the gauntlet. You would have learned to play well with others. You know, you would have made whatever amount of luck you would have made. But you didn't have that in your personality. So understand yourself and let yourself off the hook. You have talent. That doesn't mean that you're a professional writer or that you were meant to be one or that you slapped God in the face for not seeing out the talent that he gave you. Right. You know. Right. So uh, I think I if, if I had to give any advice, great. I think that would be it. No, that, gosh, <laughs> that was so well thought out, too. I love it. Have you said that before? <laughs> Once or twice. <laughs> that was great. All right. So on that note, we are uh, at the end of this, and I am so grateful for your time and your energy. And let's give your book another plug. So tell them about your book. Uh, tell the, them about the website or where they can order Oh, it. well, the book is called What Are You Laughing At? A Comprehensive Guide to the Comedic Event. Is that pretentious enough? And uh, you can get it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or just look for it on the Internet. You'll find it. And um, and uh, it's all about what happens when we laugh. The goal of it really is to make you hear laughter differently, your own, other people's. When you, you, You'll have more of a sense of what's happening with this, this magical thing that we see happen around us every single day. Great. Love that. 
Uh, and you will love this book. So I encourage everybody to go out there and get it. I've read pretty much almost every comedy book out there. And this book has something special to offer that isn't out there. So uh, and, and the idea that you have somebody who's worked in the business as long as he has and has worked on this book as long as he has, you know that you are going to get gems that are going to help you. Uh, this is Jen Grisanti, and I have a few announcements of events upcoming. I will be in Chicago from August 4th through the 12th. I will be speaking at the Chicago Screenwriters Network on August 5th. And then I will be doing the Future of Story event with Michael Weezy Productions, um, which, who is my publisher, and there are like 20 authors uh, who will be a part of the panel, so all your favorite screenwriting books. So I encourage you to check into this event. It's on August 8th. It's called The Future of Story. You can go on my website and look it up under events and seminars. And then there will be a Chicago version of the Friday Night Drinks that will be on August 10th. And you can also check that out on uh, the Chicago Screenwriters Network website and my website under events and seminars. And then I will be doing a StoryWise pilot teleseminar on August 20th and August 27th. It'll be on the web. And it, each class will be three hours, and it's all about giving you the tools to writing the TV pilot script, and uh, I'm very excited about that. You can sign up for that on my website, and I think I have it covered. Australia is coming in September, so as soon as I have more details on that, that will be up on my website. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank uh, you for having yes. me. <laughs> you are more than welcome. Thanks for coming. And this is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy and StoryWise Podcast. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.